Do you remember the words of the Magi as they spoke to Herod in uh, Matthew chapter 2? He said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. As we begin the um, third week of this wonder series, our Advent series, uh, it's that question that I think um, will most inform this week's message. Throughout the series, um, we've been looking at the wonder of the Christmas story, and ultimately uh, what that has meant is, is looking at the sovereign hand of God as he has moved through generations, he's moved through space and through time to bring about the birth of Jesus Christ and how that birth of Jesus Christ has continued to impact by the sovereign hand of God for generations and generations since. That God has brought together so many different elements and so many different things to create the life we have now in Jesus Christ. His birth isn't accidental. His birth wasn't something that just came to be, but it's been something that he has been at work in and God has been doing from time and space through infinity, really. From the first week, we saw Matthew in his recording of the birth of Christ reveal the truth that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the prophecies of Daniel and especially Isaiah, where the Messiah was going to come from the lineage of David that he would be born of a virgin, and that he would be Emmanuel, God with us. As we looked at it that first week, we, we realized that, that for thousands of years, God was pointing to the coming of Christ and speaking in and, and aligning the stars even to bring about Jesus Christ who would be Emmanuel. And that thousands of years after his birth, he is still God with us. Last week, we looked at Matthew's distilling of Christ's genealogy and what that really revealed. If you guys remember, Matthew opens his book. Before any of the details of the genealogy of Christ, he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. And then from there, he goes in and he gives, he gives um, uh, several different generations of declarations about his his lineage, about who begat who, right? But as we said, he, he distilled it in the opening in two declarations. He said he is the, the son of David and he is the son of Abraham. If you guys remember, we, we talked last week and we, we explored the idea that he was the son of Abraham. Before I talk about that, I, I, wanna, I want you to take note of something. Remember how he does it? He opens, Matthew opens it and he says, he, this is the Messiah, this is Jesus Christ the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now he says the son of David first, right? How many of you guys remember the, the, actual, the, the actual chronology of their birth? Who was born first, Abraham or David? Abraham, right? And he say, But he starts and he says, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. He says David first. There's something important revealed in that. Last week, we picked up the idea of Abraham and why he, wanted to, why he wanted to highlight that, why he wanted to say he is the son of Abraham. The importance of that is in that 
he is declaring, Matthew is declaring that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to bring through him, through Abraham, his offspring that would be an eternal blessing to all nations. So we talked about last week is that, is that thousands of years before Jesus' birth, God speaks to Abraham and says, I want you to know that through you there will be an offspring that is an eternal blessing to all nations. Thousands of years before Jesus is born. And Matthew is saying, I want you guys to understand something, that the promise, the, the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham to bring forth an offspring that would bless all nations is found in Jesus Christ. How many of you guys remember why we know that that's true? We know it's true because Paul describes it. Paul explains it to us in Galatians chapter 3. He says, In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So the significance of Christ as the son of Abraham is that Christ is the fulfillment of the blessing promised to Abraham thousands of years ago. A blessing that wasn't simply for Abraham, but a blessing that we enjoy today. Because what does Paul say? He says it is, it is that blessing of Abraham that we receive by faith in the Holy Spirit. As we said last week, each one of us, because of the coming of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we today, each one of us here, if we've accepted Christ, have the blessing of the Holy Spirit in us. The Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we discovered, as we discovered, that the wondrous plan of salvation was promised to us through Abraham by Jesus Christ. It's an incredible story, really. The Abrahamic covenant, thousands of years before Jesus Christ was born, was meant to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The sovereign hand of God aligns everything in place thousands of years before. And he says, Abraham, I want you to know there's going to be a blessing coming. And we today enjoy that very blessing because of Jesus Christ. Now, now wouldn't it be something... If the phrase, son of David, carried with it similar importance, similar uh, uh, multi-generational implications of a divine promise. Now, what we saw last week was Matthew declaring Christ as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the blessing that transforms our lives here and now. And the truth is what we're going to see today is Matthew declaring Christ when he says, Son of David, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that should affect our lives even today. So here's how the story begins thousands of years before Jesus Christ is born. David, after being made, made, made king, wants to build a temple for God. He lives in his, his great palace, and he wants a great palace for God to live in. But God has declared that his desire 
is to have a king of peace build the temple and not to have the king of war. If you guys were here, we went through all the series. We went through the series in which we looked at the life of David, and we realized that David, throughout his life, was really about battle, was really about war, was really uh, about confronting the enemies of Israel. And he killed his thousands, his ten thousands. They declared. And so David, because of his love for God, says, "I want to set up and I want to establish a, a permanent temple, a permanent location for the presence of God to dwell." And God says, "No, that's not for you to do." Because you are a man of war, and I want it to be built by a king of peace. And so the prophet of Nathan brings a promise from God to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in response to David's um, real disappointment that he's not going to be the one who builds the temple. So he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they will dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity, I will dis discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Would you bow your heads with me and ask God's blessing on his word this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we step into your word, as we step into your word and, uh, as, as a time of reflection on this season, that you desire to reveal to us truth, truth about your birth, but truth about your birth that affects our lives, how we live every single day. So Father, I pray that our hearts would be open, that your spirit would be active, and that we would be led into your truth. In your precious name we pray. Amen. There's really two important aspects um, about the promise that God makes to David through Nathan um, that I want us to point out that point to Jesus Christ. The first is that I will raise up an offspring after you. What he's saying here is, He's saying here is, from your line, from the line of David, I will raise someone up. Now, this is something we've talked about already um, that, that Matthew has reiterated. Matthew gave that whole genealogy, and he showed that the line went from David all the way down to Jesus, so Jesus falls from that line. So we know that the offspring comes from the line of David, and that Jesus Christ came from the line of David. But there's something else that's declared here that I think is important for us to see 
because it relates to something beyond David himself, beyond David's ability to carry on his kingdom in his humanity, and really in the humanity of all that come after him. Because the declaration of of God through Nathan is this, I will establish your kingdom forever. I will establish your kingdom forever. You will have an eternal reign. Your line will reign forever. He says, your offspring shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. One of the important insights you need to, you, you need to bring to this prophetic promise is the truth that Jewish prophecy is marked um, by dualistic fulfillment. I remember years ago um, having a biblical scholar who, who taught at Marquette University, he was a good friend of mine, um, uh, was, uh, was a guy who was brilliant, and, and he'd, studied, he'd studied the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, and he came and he shared with us at Mercy Hill this very thing, this very idea. He said that, that there are primary and sub-fulfillments um, found in Hebrew prophecy. And he was talking specifically about this passage, and, and for this passage, we see the sub-fulfillment of the promise of God to Nathan, through Nathan to David um, in Solomon. So Solomon, the son of David, comes and he establishes king and he builds, he builds this temple, uh, the great temple of Israel, built by the hand of Solomon. Um, but we see an allusion in, in this to the prime type of the prophecy. The subtype is Solomon, but we see an allusion to the, to the, primary, to the prime type, which is Jesus Christ, when he says, we, I will establish your kingdom forever. He makes, it, he makes that declaration two different times to, to emphasize the fact that there is an eternal nature of the kingdom of David that will last beyond his time, beyond Solomon's time. Your throne, he says, will be established forever. But we know David's reign end. We, knew, we know Solomon's reign ended. But somehow, the reign of the kingdom of David will be eternal. See, the eternal blessing promised to Abraham was fulfilled in Christ, and the eternal reign promised to David is fulfilled in Christ. What we're saying today is that Jesus Christ is the eternal king. That, 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 that ensconced, in, in, in that, that, that um, established at the birth of Jesus Christ is the reality that the king was born that day. And that of his kingdom, there is no end. That he is the eternal king. Christ is the eternal king. The kingship of Jesus is this important reality that Matthew is bringing out when he says, this is the son of David. 
This is a consistent truth discovered throughout the life of Jesus Christ. We already read this morning the Declaration of the Magi, where they say, where is the one who is born King of the Jews? And it's interesting because it reflects what we see at the end of his life too, isn't it? At his birth, the Magi come and say, this is the King of the Jews. Do you remember the declaration that was posted above Christ's head as he hung on the cross? This is the king of the Jews. It's interesting because between those two bookends, we see Christ refer to his kingdom 60 times in the gospel. The promise of God to David was that from his line would come the establishment of an eternal reigning kingdom. And Matthew is telling the Jews and he is telling us that Christ has come and has established for all times his kingdom reign. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to David thousands of years before he was born and affects our lives thousands of years after Jesus has died. As we look into the manger this Christmas season, how many of us realize we are staring into the face of the eternal king who has, who has established an eternal kingdom? Christ came as an infant child, and by his gospel life, through his, his Holy Spirit, has established his kingdom here eternal, forever, as the fulfillment of the promise, the covenant that God made with David. So as we sit here this morning and we, and we really contemplate that idea, as we really, we really think on that idea, for many of us, this is something that we know, this is something that we've heard, this is something that's been reiterated over and over and over again as we've been in church. We've heard the declaration of the Magi that we're coming to worship the King of Jews. We've heard the declaration that above, the, 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 above his head in the cross that it say the King of the Jews. We heard, we've heard over and over again Jesus talk about the kingdom. But what does that mean to you and I? How does that affect our lives today? How important is it as we contemplate the birth of the King during the Christmas season. Really, what is the kingdom of God? This is a key question that we have to answer that really tells us a lot about what Christianity is. If he is king and he has a kingdom, what is that kingdom? Well, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom. In Matthew 19, he tells us it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom. In Mark 10, he says you have to be like a child to get to the kingdom. In Luke 4, he says he came to preach about the kingdom. In Luke 6, in the Beatitudes, he said that the kingdom belonged to the poor. In Luke 9, he sent the disciples out to declare the kingdom. In Luke 17, 
He said that the kingdom is in our midst. And in John chapter 3, he said that you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. What's the kingdom? Christ compares the kingdom to scattered seeds, to a hidden treasure, to a fishnet, to leaven. And he tells us it has a narrow door. Over and over again, Jesus Christ refers to the kingdom. So clearly, the kingdom is an important topic to Jesus. And it doesn't just end with Jesus. As we go to the epistles, as the apostles are writing to the church, and they're talking to us about the kingdom, 12 different times we see in the epistles the reference to the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom? Jesus Christ came to establish his eternal kingdom, and he taught us over and over and over again in regards to it. So what is the kingdom of God? Scripture gives us some some very clear ideas as to what the kingdom of God is. First, the comparisons that Christ makes to the kingdom of God tells us that it is to be valued above all else. Now, now I I want this part to sink in because I think this is important for us as we find ourselves today in the wake of the reality that the eternal king came and established his kingdom. I want you to understand that Jesus Christ said that the kingdom of God is to be valued above all else. He compares it to to a great pearl. He compares it to to a field in which a, a buried treasure is. He says that this is something that you should sell everything for, that you should lay aside everything to go and get. In fact, he makes a declaration about the kingdom of God. He says, listen, if your eye should offend you, you should pluck your eye out if it's going to keep you from getting into the kingdom of God. That's pretty drastic, isn't it? What we understand first and foremost about the kingdom of God is it's, it's more precious, it's more valuable than anything else in this world. And then he begins to show us exactly what the kingdom is. In Luke 17, he declares, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in you. What he's saying here is he's saying, listen, the kingdom of God is not out there. It's not something that's acquired here on this earth. In fact, he declares that so emphatically in this illuminating conversation that he has uh, with Pilate as he's facing death. When Pilate asks him, are you a king? Jesus answers and says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world 
to bear witness to the truth. See, Jesus Christ continually stated while he was here that the kingdom was near, that it was at hand, that it was coming, and that he came that it might be established here. And it was. It was established when by his death and resurrection, his victory over sin, hell, and the grave, allowed him to send his Holy Spirit to work and transform the hearts of men to discover, to understand, to feel the glory of God. See, what is the kingdom of God? It's more precious than anything that the world has to offer. It's established in the hearts of men, and it transforms and changes everything by the work of Jesus Christ and the presence of his Holy Spirit. This is what he came to do, he said, to establish the kingdom in the hearts of men. He was born to live the gospel life, to die a gospel death, to rise in gospel glory so that by his Holy Spirit he couldn't plant the seed of his kingdom in our hearts here on earth. In fact, Paul in Romans 14 clarifies it even more, I think, when he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Think about this again. Last week, we, we talked about the idea of how the promise to Abraham carries over to us. Galatians chapter 3 says that we have in us the Spirit of God by faith. As the, as the inheritance of Abraham's promise. And as we talked about it, each one of us could in our own hearts, in our own lives, identify with that reality, the blessing of the Spirit of God in us today. Paul, in this passage, in Romans, makes that same understanding, that same declaration. The promise of David for the establishment of the kingdom was established in our hearts because we have the Holy Spirit alive in us. That presence is more precious than anything, more precious than a field where there is a treasure, more precious than a pearl of great price. We have the establishment of the kingdom of God in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. What a gift. What a fulfillment of the eternal promise, of the eternal reign, of the throne of David. The kingdom of God is not about attaining anything of the world. It's not about anything that this world has to offer. But it's discovered by the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us. So ultimately, what is the kingdom that's established by the Holy Spirit. I don't think I could describe it any better than how Tim Keller describes it. The kingdom of God is the presence of the future, a foretaste of heaven. It is a foretaste, an advanced sample of what life will be like 
when dwelling in God's exquisite presence in heaven. The kingdom is the inbreaking of heaven. The dynamic rule and reign of God has come and presently is touching the earth. All that heaven will be, freedom from sickness, deliverance from oppression, joy in forgiveness, is experienced now in Christ Jesus. The power of Christ's kingly rule is now present among gathered Christians, liberating people from false masters and enslaving idols. Among the disciples, the kingdom is a new human order in which power and money, recognition and success are properly reordered in light of the registry of the kingdom. It's not that these no longer matter, but they become transposed by the unleashing of Christ's new creation, by service, generosity, and humility. Jesus' kingship is not like human kingships, for it was influenced through suffering service, not coercive power. We enter it not through strength, but through the weakness of repentance and the new birth of becoming like a child. The kingdom has come in Christ and has been established in our hearts. I love the declaration that that Tim Keller makes here because he's telling us that the kingdom is heaven-breaking through that we have the opportunity because of the establishment of the kingdom of God in our lives to be set free by the power of the Holy Spirit from sickness. We have the ability to be set free and delivered from oppression. That joy can take place in our lives in spite of circumstances because the presence of God reigns. kingdom has come in Christ and is advancing throughout the world and the kingdom will be fully established with the return of Christ. The kingdom of God reigns in the hearts of those who have made Christ Lord of their lives and it's manifested in and through us by the Holy Spirit's presence through the preaching of the gospel, the healing of the sick, the release from demonic bondage. The kingdom of God is advancing as he conquers men and women's hearts. As the power of the cross takes bear in our lives. Jesus came on that Christmas morning so that his kingdom may be established in our hearts the kingdom of of his glory and his beauty and his joy and his grace and his holiness and his healing. The light of the kingdom of God exploded into the darkness of this world. And on that Christmas morning, we who have been enslaved by our own sins might taste the great hope of his glory as we enthrone him in our lives today. Do you see why it is the great pearl? Why it's the great buried treasure? How is it that we can care about the things of this world, the the little baubles that are offered to us in this world? 
when we have been given the great kingdom of God. I want you to know this morning that whatever it is you're in, whatever it is you're facing, whatever it is you're dealing with, the promise of God to David to establish the eternal kingdom came on that Christmas morning so that you might find freedom. So that you might find joy and hope and life and peace. There is nothing in this world that will set you free. There's nothing in this world that will break the bonds. There is nothing in this world that will give you ultimate peace and joy and hope. But there is in the kingdom of Jesus Christ all as we lay our lives down before him. See, here's the reality about the kingdom. You have to bend your knee and bow your head before the king. Jesus Christ came and established the hope for each one of us that heaven might break through in the darkness of man. But it requires that we bow our knee, bend our knees and bow our head before him to say, Lord, you reign, you're king. I am your subject. And I give my life before you. See, how does the kingdom affect us? No matter what we've said to this point, it really doesn't mean anything unless we allow the kingdom to affect us. And by, uh, by bending our knees and establishing him as king in our lives, we see heaven break through. That's how the kingdom will affect our lives today. We have to be overwashed with the light of his kingdom so we might be transformed. To receive that foretaste of glory divine and be changed. I want you to think about your life this Christmas season. How much do you allow him to reign in your life? much have you given yourself to him and said, you are king, you are Lord? See, the gift of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit isn't looking to come in and force it. But it's established in our hearts when we yield to him. The reason I keep reiterating this is because I feel very deeply in my heart and my spirit that there are many people here this morning who are finding a hard time being set free. You're struggling in bondage right now. And the King of glory is standing before you and saying, let me reign. Let me reign. Give me full reign in your life what I came to do. 
none of this really means anything. None of this has any real value. Unless we see that the hand of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God is meant to speak into your life right now, in this moment. He is king. Bend your knee this morning.